nearing the end of our study through Esther. I think I'm going to be a little sad to leave leave our sister behind. I've enjoyed this this study quite a bit. We have a little short chapter this morning in chapter seven. I've entitled the lesson "An Enemy Exposed," and we've we've seen this tension building and building and building, leading up to this destruction of Haman. And and there's a number of things that are are typified in this turn of events and the destruction of Haman. But before we get there, um, let's let's think about something that that plays significantly in the chapter, and it's this theme of identity. It's the theme of identity. Our our culture is is in many ways obsessed with the concept of identity, Uh, whether it's gender identity or racial identity. In fact, the the term identity politics has has described just how prominent these matters have become in in the, the ordinary conversations within our culture. But the scriptures teach... Uh, the Old Testament scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, all consistently teach that, that in the end, there's only one identity that matters. Are we identified with God's people? Are we named among those whom God has set his eternal love upon? Or are we named among those that God has, has entered into covenant with? Do you belong by faith in a covenant relationship with Yahweh, believing that he is the one who will redeem and who will rescue and who will reward all those who call upon his, his holy name, his mighty name. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Esther, and we're watching Esther work through this in real time. You know, sometimes we, we approach the scriptures, we see these, these characters, and we see the ones that are, we consider heroes of the faith. And, and we think, well, they, they were, they just got it. Things came easy to them. You know, faith just must have really come easy to Abraham. For David, you know, faith must have just been really something that just came easy to him. But if we're honest and a careful reading of the scriptures, we realize faith is never easy. Faith never comes easy. It's a gift of God, and yet the working out of that faith in, in real time and under the, the ordinary circumstances of life and under the extraordinary, exceedingly pressing and discouraging circumstances of life, it's even more difficult to work out our faith. That's why Paul it admonishes us to work out your faith in fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what he means. It's working out your faith. How, how do you cling to these promises? And up to this point in the story of Esther, she has carefully concealed her identity. Even her own husband, the king, does not know that she's Jewish. That has been concealed, even though all the way up through here, we've seen that the whole are you a Jew or not a Jew? Kind of a big deal, isn't it, in the narrative? It's no small, minor plot point. It's a major thing, and yet here's Esther. Which side is she on? Who, who does she belong to? Who does she identify with? And we saw early on, she really sought, just sort of by inertia, she just sought to flow in the river of Persian culture and just drift along. And, and she went into the harem. She, she seemed to go above and beyond to please the king, and God in his providence used that to, to exalt her to a place of prominence, to be, become the queen of Persia. And yet, she's come to a, a point of, of crisis. We saw this going back to chapter 5, when, when Mordecai tells her, perhaps you've been placed here for just such a time as this. And, and the Lord will provide deliverance for his people. One way or another, Mordecai was convinced, the Lord is going to rescue his people, 
The question is, Esther, are you going to be a part of that or not? Hiding your identity is not going to save you. You will perish along with all of your other, with all the other people if God allows us to perish. Now, Mordecai's identity as a Jew has been a source of danger to him from the beginning, and particularly from the very selfish and, let's face it, the racist Mordecai, uh, Haman. So we're going to look at this, again, short chapter, divide it just really in, in two, two main points. One is the safety that's found in a dangerous identity. And there's a, there's a paradox there already, isn't there? There's a safety that's found in a dangerous identity. And then secondly, we'll see a picture of wrath being turned away. Wrath being, we might even say, propitiated. So let's read the text. <clears throat> I'm going to back up and catch the, the last paragraph of the previous chapter because chapter, chapter 7 begins with sort of a running start. Uh, it will kind of feel like you, you fell out of the back of a pickup truck at highway speed if, if we just jump in and start with chapter 7. So back up to verse 10 in chapter 6. The king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes of the horse as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short anything of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse and clothed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and called out before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hastened home mourning with his head covered. And Haman recounted to Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh's wife said to him, If Mordecai, before, you have, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the seed of the Jews... You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs reached Haman's home and hastily brought Haman to the feast which Esther had prepared. Now, kind of have that in mind as we enter into chapter 7. While they were still speaking, so basically mid-sentence, Haman's just is, is wallowing now in his uh, self-imposed misery, his, his pride has become a snare to him. And, and while his wife and his, the wise men are telling him, if Mordecai before you have begun to fall is of the seed of the Jews, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him while they were still speaking. The king's eunuchs come and hastily usher Haman to the feast. Then chapter 7, the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the feast, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be given you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your eyes, O king, and if it seems good to the king, let my life be given to me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be, and to be caused to perish." Now, if we, have, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the adversity would not be worth the annoyance to the king. Being, then King Ahasuerus said, he said to Esther the queen, Who is this one, and where is this one who fills his heart to do thus? So Esther said, An adversary and an enemy is this evil Haman. Then Haman 
became terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from drinking wine and went into the garden of his palace. But Haman stayed to seek for his life from against uh, his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that calamity had been determined against him by the king. Now the king returned from the garden of his palace into the place where they were drinking wine, and Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. So, king, so the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king, are standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's wrath subsided. Let's ask the Lord to help us to understand what the Spirit of God is teaching us through his word. Father, we ask for your Spirit's help. We ask in the name and by the authority of your Son, who is the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. We ask that you will help us to discern in this, this story of Esther's uh, stand upon the identity of God's people. Uh, help us to understand how, how you do likewise in every generation for your people as we stand, up, uh, stand publicly to identify with you, as we stand publicly upon your covenant promises. Even when we do so with fear and trembling, may we uh, learn more and more to trust that your promises are sure and that you will not leave your people without necessary protection. And even if our lives are taken from us, you will again raise us up at the last day and cause us to sit and judge the nations. We ask you uh, for your help as we study this passage. You, you will convict us of sin, cause us to be more bold and courageous for the sake of Christ, and cause our, our faith to be increased more and more uh, to believe these sweet and precious promises of our Savior. Amen. Let's note, first of all, how there is a safety. Esther finds safety in, in a very dangerous identity. And again, here's the paradox of the Christian life, isn't it? The, Jesus said, if, if you would seek to save your life, what's going to happen? You're going to lose it. But anyone who's, who's willing to give up his life will find that his life is actually saved. So the time has come now to answer the king, and Esther can no longer prudently put him off. And you know, this is the third time now the king has made this request of her. And, and he's, he's very ostentation in ter- ostentatious in terms of what he promises. Up to half of my kingdom, it's all yours, whatever you ask me. And the first time is when she goes in with, with no doubt, fear in her heart, not wondering if this is going to be her last breath. When she goes before the king without invitation, he's, he holds out the golden scepter. She touches it. He then says, he found, she found favor in his sight, and he asked her, what do you want? And she said, well, my request is that you would come to this banquet. I'm preparing a banquet for you and Haman. So the king says, sure, I'll go. And, and then at the second one, or at the first banquet, she gets him to agree to a second banquet. And by doing so, she shrewdly is getting him now publicly in front of a witness to commit to give her whatever she asked for. So by coming to the second feast, the second banquet, the king is essentially has publicly obligated himself to fulfill Esther's request. It's a very shrewd move. But there's more than shrewdness going on. There's, there's, there's a necessary courage. So she takes her breath. She kind of takes this deep breath now, no doubt, when the king asks her once again, Esther, what do you want? 
And, and she can't keep this game up. She can't keep putting him off. And so she says, now, finally, if I have found favor in your eyes, O king, and if it seems good to the king, let my life be given to me as my petition and my people as my request. Now, that's got to be a surprise statement to the king. I mean, how is it that someone in his inner court, but particularly his wife, is feeling threatened for her life. I mean, the king would have prided himself in being able to protect those near to him. I mean, this is essentially assault on his life, because if if her life is in danger, then perhaps mine is as well. Clearly, Esther has learned that her rescue now depends upon her being rescued along with all of her people. It depends upon her identifying with a people that is condemned to die. And that's what she says. She says, for we have been sold. The pronoun shifts, we, it's not just my life, we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now she's quoting directly from Haman's decree. Haman had twisted things, manipulated things, even bribed the king in order to get this this order of execution distributed to all the kingdom, and now she's quoting directly from that. Now, the king... He's been presented up to, to us up to this point as, as a rather dim-witted sort of man. Very proud, but not the sharpest tool in the shed. And so I don't think that, I mean, it's possible that this, that when she repeats that phrase, that it would have been that immediately recognizable to him, and that he would have thought, wait a minute, I, I, I remember signing that paper. I don't think so. This is several years, this was several months earlier, and, and I don't, Remember, he'd given his ring to Haman, and Haman was the one who actually signed the order on the king's behalf. So who do you think, for whose benefit do you think she quotes the, de- the decree directly? For Haman's. So he's sitting there, you know, he's already a little nervous, because in the back of his mind, the words of his wife and the wise men are ringing in his ears. I mean, but when he was invited to the first feast, I mean, he was just beside himself, bragging at everybody he ran across bragging everyone he ran across about how, how honored he was before the king. Now he's got these words echoing. If Mordecai is of the seed of the Jews, your goose is cooked. And now Esther, the queen, whom Haman also doesn't know as a Jew, appeals to the king and says, we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be caused to perish. And Haman's got to be thinking, oh no. What's going to happen? And Esther, of course, said, if, we, if, we, if this were a matter of us being sold as slaves, I would have kept my mouth shut. It wouldn't be worth the king's trouble. But we've been ordered to be executed. And of course, the king, now he's indignant. He's enraged. Who's done such a thing? Who would have done such a thing? And the king uh, is, is still clearly in the dark. He doesn't recognize this is, this is Haman, his second-in-command, who's orchestrated such a thing. But this reminds me, you know, Esther's courage to identify herself publicly, her, her willingness to say, I, I belong to God, to Yahweh, and I belong to his people, reminds me of what our Lord told his disciples. Remember when he sent them out two by two? to preach the gospel. And he says to them, therefore, whoever one confess, who, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, 
I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So here's one of the biggest reversals of fortune that we've seen in all of the book. Haman goes from thinking, I'm on the top of the world. No man in the kingdom is honored more than me. To now, all of a sudden, he's realizing, I'm going to die today. And Esther, who just a few days prior, is going into the king thinking, I'm going to die today. There's a good chance I don't survive another day. And now she stands, identifies with God's people. But here's something that we have to consider. Esther still knows there's a dilemma here. The king still faces a dilemma. Even though she now has appealed to a sense of justice, and she has essentially obligated him publicly to act on her request, but there's a problem. The king is already publicly obligated with a signed, sealed, and distributed decree around the kingdom to kill all the Jews. So what's the answer to that dilemma? Esther doesn't know yet. I mean, even if everything goes according to Esther's plan, even if everything's worked perfectly, and so far it has, the king still has a dilemma. And ultimately... It's not the fact that the Jews are saved by identifying with Esther. The Jews are saved by Esther identifying with the Jews. Esther now publicly, dangerously, identifies herself with a people under an order of death, under an order of execution, destruction, annihilation. Esther risks her own life for the sake of those who are condemned to die. And in doing so, Esther points us ahead. Esther points us ahead to another one, who would take on the identity of the very people who were under an order of condemnation and under an order of destruction. Esther points us, she really is a type of Christ to the God-man. Sometimes we don't think about this way. We don't think about this way. Think about the scriptures in this way. We think about types and shadows But sometimes we're hesitant to look upon a woman in the scriptures and say, well, she couldn't be a type of Christ. She's a woman. We don't understand typology. Typology is someone who points to another. The type is always other than and greater than, but Esther is, without a doubt, a type of Christ. She is a type of the one who would take on the form of a servant to offer his own life as a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of what Esther merely points us toward. He he is the one who not only showed a willingness to identify with his people, but actually took upon himself their sin and actually died in their place. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Well, the reason Jesus could say this is because he himself was about to go the way of death. He was about to die on behalf of his people, but he was also going to be raised again. And so those who who were willing to follow him, even, even to the point of obedience in death, would also have the assurance of being raised again with him in life. And that's why Paul would say to the to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, now then. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. 
We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we've talked a lot in the in the book of Esther about this reversal of fortune as a literary device, pointing us to God's hidden hand, his secret power in the book. But in, in Christ, God has offered the ultimate reversal of fortune for his enemies. Jesus so identified with the plight of his people, a people given to him before the world was formed, a people given to him based on the love of the Father in eternity, and he identified with those very people in such a way that he became sin on our behalf. I mean, Esther points us forward to that, where she stands up courageously and boldly and and says, I'm one of them. I'm under an order of execution. And, and through that, the Lord delivers her and delivers her people. The way that Christ delivered his, his people is he actually went to the grave. He actually suffered this, the stings of death, both body and soul. And so now, because of Christ's work, anyone who identifies by faith with Christ as Lord, as Savior, as Judge, as Redeemer, as King, God will give to that man, to that woman, and to that, to, or to that child, all the righteousness of God that was perfectly demonstrated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. David Strain says in his commentary about uh, Esther chapter 7, he says, Again and again, and with growing clarity as her duty became clear to her, Esther has pointed us like a flashing neon arrow away from herself to the Lord Jesus Christ, and never has she done so more clearly than here. In order to secure the salvation of her people, she must be identified with a people who stand under a sentence of death. The law of the king has proclaimed their destruction, but Esther stands in solidarity with them. She has identified with them. She becomes one of them, placing herself under their sentence, and as she does so, she secures their redemption. So here it is that Esther finds her safety in a dangerous identity. There's a paradox here. It's actually stepping out, putting her her life on the line that she finds she's actually saved, she and her people. And after the fall of Adam, God the great king has placed all men, not just Jews, not just one particular ethnicity, not just one particular nationality, but every man, every woman, every child is under an order of death and destruction and annihilation because of their sin against him. That's the universal order. And without exception, all stand condemned. And yet God sent his only begotten son to stand in the place of sinners, to identify with sinners. He has borne our sorrows, endured the death that we should have died, and he has borne the infinite, holy, incomprehensible wrath of God upon his own body, upon his own soul. And by becoming one of us, God has then secured our redemption. But then we come back to the narrative of, of Esther and think about the, the dilemma that I mentioned. The king is now in a very public political pickle. He's, there's a signed decree that said all of the Jews have to die. It's got this, the, the, whether he remembers it or not, it has the king's signet ring impression on the, this is this one out on official presidential letterhead, stationary. 
And, and now, how do we think about that? How, how, does, how does Esther think about this? What does the king do with this? Even if, if she finds favor in his sight, and she has, but how, how, does, how, does, how is the dilemma undone? The king had publicly decreed for all the Jews to be killed, but at the same time, he's publicly and, and even extravagantly promised to fulfill whatever Esther desired up to half the kingdom. None of this could simply be undone. So the king finds himself on what the idiom says, he's on the horns of a dilemma. What does he do? And I think that's, that's, that's what we see in verse 7. The king arose in his wrath from drinking wine and went into the garden of his palace, but Haman stayed to seek for his life from Queen Esther. So, and we think, well, the king is just in a, in a blind rage, so he goes out to the garden to kind of blow off some steam or to collect his thoughts. That, that could be it. But I think more than that, the king is in a dilemma. What do I do with this? How do I save face? You know, this, he's, this is a man driven by pride, driven by his passions. And, and now he recognizes the dilemma because she's pointed the finger. Can you imagine? You, you wish there was a, a, a hidden camera in that room, don't you? Don't you wish you had a look, a camera zoomed in on Haman when all this was going down? And just to watch him squirm, watch the, the blood rush out of his face, to watch one who's probably middle brown in complexion by nature turn ashen white, just like that. So don't think for a second that Esther's unaware of this dilemma that she's placed the king in. She's shrewd, and we've seen that. One thing we know about Esther up to this point is she's demonstrated a shrewdness. So I don't think this, this is a fact that hasn't occurred to her. How would the dilemma be solved? How would God save and deliver, even if she did find favor in the sight of the king? So one of the things I think we can wrongly perceive here and think that it is actually Esther's shrewdness that has saved her. I think Esther's shrewdness would have communicated to her that even if I convince the king to, to, to fulfill my request, there still is a dilemma, and I don't know how that's going to work. Esther still had to exercise a faith here, didn't she? See, sometimes we think, well, if I can just work out everything that's going to happen, then I'll believe. If, if, if God will just show me how he's going to make the deliverance, how he's going to make the rescue, and if I can, especially if I get to, to, to get to play, you know, maybe not chess master, but at least a competent chess player and move the pieces around the board in such a way, then, yeah, I have no problem exercising faith in. That's not where Esther was. She realizes there's a dilemma that remains. And if we don't appreciate the full measure of her dilemma, of the king's dilemma, then we won't really fully appreciate the solution that providence provides here. Because there is a solution provided by providence. In a sense, God is the one who caused Haman to hang himself. Not metaphorically, not allegorically, but actually. Literally, Haman is the cause of his own hanging, and yet God is the first cause. God has worked all of these things together. Now, David Strain provides an interesting point here, just sort of a historical fact about life in the Persian court. It was forbidden for any man at any time to be alone with any member of the king's harem. It was a capital offense, just to be alone in the same room. Now, you think the Billy Graham rule is strict. 
And even in the king's presence, no one was permitted to be within seven steps of one of his concubines. That was under Persian law. Now, the king leaves the room. What does Haman do? He doesn't, it's not, <laughs> this is the original COVID protocols, wasn't it? Seven steps away from a concubine. Social distancing of the, of the first order. Um, well, it wasn't that Haman counted out eight steps just to make sure or that he fled from that. No, he goes the other direction. How much worse do you suppose an infraction would be if, if you got within seven steps of not just a concubine, but the queen? And then especially outside of the king's presence. Now, we find Haman, I mean, and you can only imagine, just the, the, the emotional whiplash that has taken place with Haman in a matter of probably only about 48 hours, maybe less, to go from bragging to his wife and his friends about how honored he was and that no one except me and the king is invited to the queen's feast. I mean, you can imagine how far that chest is stuck out and just the, 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 the brashness of the stories he's telling. I mean, you, you guys have met this guy before. I mean, you know this, this kind of guy. And then less than 48 hours later, the blood has drained from his face. He's had to, he's, he's had to escort his, his mortal enemy around the city, proclaiming his excellency, proclaiming the, the, the honor of the king on him instead. And now Esther has pointed her Jewish finger at Haman and said, he is the reason that I am under a death sentence. And, and then to see, no doubt, the way the king would have looked at Haman, his most trusted vice president, and the king to rush out of the room in anger. And, and the text tells us, the king arose in his wrath from drinking wine and went into the garden of his palace, but Haman stayed to seek for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that calamity had been determined against him by the king. Now, is there, that's an understatement. And it's almost a humorous, it's almost like uh, in, in, the, in Luke's gospel and Acts, one of the, the phrases that Luke likes to use is things like, well, there was no small disturbance. It was a whole riot in Ephesus. And Luke said, well, there was no small disturbance. Well, here, Haman sees that calamity had been determined against him by the king. And then the king returns from the garden of his palace into the place where they were drinking wine. So we already know that, but the narrator wants us to remember this was supposed to be the scene of Haman's greatest triumph in his own mind. He's a hero in his own mind. And, and this was the place where just moments earlier he had been drinking wine with the king. I mean, no doubt, the finest china, the finest crystal goblets, the place where they were drinking wine is now the place of his death sentence. And Haman had quite literally prostrated himself on the couch where Esther was. Again, illegal to be in the same room with one of the king's concubines, alone. Illegal to be within seven steps, even in his presence. Esther's on the couch, and here's Haman prostrating himself before her. Haman is now out of his mind. 
with, with utter terror. I mean, he knows his, his goose is cooked. In, in desperation, he, he falls before Esther, begging for his life. And apparently, his timing is even worse than the act itself. Because it's just at that moment the king comes back in and sees this scene. He lies, here lies the solution to the king's dilemma. And I think the king recognizes this immediately. And the king says, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now, perhaps the king walks in and in a a state of mind compromised by his own emotions, perhaps he does look at this and think that Haman is actually assaulting the queen. I doubt that. I think it's pretty obvious. This is the man who's blubbering and crying and begging and prostrated before this woman. I think it's pretty clear what's not happening there. But it doesn't matter, does it? Politically, this is the solution. Because... This is a capital offense, or at least it can be framed that way. And no one's going to, to, to deny the king's word. The king said, I saw it with my own eyes. In, in my own presence, he was assaulting the queen. So, and I think it's, it's interesting too. If you, if you, I think, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a sanctified reading between the lines here with the response of the eunuchs. One, Someone's already got a, a, a head cover, an executioner's cover. Like, I'm King, I got one right here. Um, they don't like this guy. No one likes Haman. No one likes him. He's an arrogant, pompous, opportunistic, self-serving, racist bureaucrat. And even the eunuchs go, yeah, King, I got a hood. Someone else says, I know a place we can hang him. Just one ready-made king. It's brand spanking new. Still got the bark on the pole. Ready to go. And the king said, so be it. So he, this solves the dilemma. So here we see Esther's faith exercised and rewarded. Because again, I think Esther would have known there was a political dilemma for the king. Even to get her request fulfilled was not going to be an easy thing. But here's the solution. Because of his conduct, because of Haman's um, conduct before the queen, the king now gets to face, save face publicly. But notice what happens immediately here after Haman's execution. One of the, one of the eunuchs happens to have a hood at the ready. Then another one named Har- Harbona says, behold, indeed, the gallows. And, he, it, you know, there's a dig here. Behold, there's a gallows, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. That gallows just happens to be standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. Again, I think a kind of a sanctified reading between the line. What do you think the eunuch's view of Mordecai is? They like this guy. Mordecai's been a faithful man. They have no grief against Mordecai whatsoever. They watch Mordecai be paraded through the city. 
honored by the king, and then go right back to his ordinary job at the city gates. Mordecai has not done anything. He's not sought to undermine the, the, the royal rule of the king. He, he's dealt with integrity. Even, the, even the, 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 the people here at the State Department know that. They understand this. And the eunuch said, you know, Haman had intended this from Mordecai, the same Mordecai king who spoke well of you, who protected you, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king issues the order for Haman to be hanged, so they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's wrath subsided. I mean, here's a picture of wrath being turned away by someone being hanged on a tree. Where have we heard that before? You know, again, here's Mordecai unintentionally. Here's Haman unintentionally serving as as signposts, pointing us to the propitiation of a greater wrath of a greater king against a greater sin. As soon as Haman is executed, the wrath of the king subsided. The The shedding of Haman's blood solved the problem of the king's wrath. It it provided a just object of the king's wrath. So rather than turning the wrath upon Esther and upon the Jewish people, we get to see that wrath quenched upon the one who hangs on the tree. This points us really to the full glory of the gospel message. The wrath of God was justly stored up against sinful men. Justice the law, had to be satisfied. I mean, the king's dilemma here was real. He couldn't just do away with the law in order to show favor to Esther. Nor could our, the king of all the earth, the ancient of days, he could not just turn away from the law. The just demands of of his righteousness, the just demands of his holiness, the just demands of his perfection had to be satisfied. And and so here's the the, the opportunity to have that wrath poured out upon Haman. And that, of course, points us to God not being being able simply to overlook sin. I mean, men had, had genuinely, grievously, infinitely sinned against the holy God. That couldn't just be overlooked or done away with. God cannot just turn a blind eye to sin. God cannot just say, meh, I'll just let it go. Now we see when, when Paul stands on Mars Hill and he, and he goes and he speaks to the Athenian scholars there and he says, God has been patient. He's overlooked those things. But Paul's very clear, that's only temporary. That's only to provide time for those to come to repentance and faith. It's, it's not a forever looking away. Men had genuinely sinned against God and justly deserved the full measure of his wrath and yet in his mercy, God purposed to save Some, but how did he do it? Justice must still be done. Holiness can't just simply be ignored and blotted out. Wrath has to be satisfied. And this is part of Paul's thrust in in his wonderful theological argument in Romans, where he argues in Romans chapter 3 that everyone is guilty. Here's the dilemma. Here's the horns of the dilemma. Everyone is guilty. God desires to show mercy to some. What's the answer to the dilemma? Paul says in Romans 3, chapter, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be, the, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's, here's the answer. God's wrath, he didn't just ignore it. He didn't self-quench it. He said, I'm going to pour it out upon my own son so that I can be both just and justifier. Or the words of the Apostle John, he says, In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In both cases, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John use this word propitiation. It means the satisfaction of wrath. And here we see in King Ahasuerus a wicked man, a pagan man, and yet we see the principle here of his wrath being poured out upon one who hangs on a tree. In the person, in the work of Haman, Haman justly received the penalty for his own sins. I mean, we've we already seen Haman literally hanged himself. Uh, all that Haman had done justly deserved the penalty which he received. I mean, he, he by his own hands, he built this, um, this big impaling stake, 75 feet tall, on which he intended to murder Mordecai, and in which he found himself hanged and humiliated. The contrast, of course, with Christ is that there was no sin in him. There was no deceit, there was no imperfection, there was no spot, there was no blemish, there was no, no such thing. Not in word or thought or deed. And yet Christ took upon himself all the sins of those who did deserve, all of us who did deserve to be hung on the tree. God took that upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He bore that penalty for us. So as we think about this reversal of fortune, uh, it, is, it is not only that Esther was saved by identifying with a dangerous group. She identified herself publicly with a group that was condemned to die. And that's what we're called to do, isn't it? If, if you seek to lose your life, if you're willing to lose your life, Christ says you'll gain it. If you're seeking to preserve your life, if I identify publicly as a Christian, I may die, or I may lose my job, or I may get scorned and mocked, are you willing to do that for the sake of Christ? There's a promise there. When you identify dangerously, that's where safety is found. And, and that when we do that, the very wrath of God is propitiated in another. And we see that. Um, we're going to see in, in, in Judges as well as we're working through, in our worship service, working through the book of Judges. We're kind of right smack in the middle of the Samson narrative. We, we see with Samson sort of a negative type of Christ also. We find one in Haman. Here's one who hangs on the tree to satisfy the wrath of the king, but it's because of his own sin. Christ hangs on the tree to satisfy, his, satisfy the wrath of the king of all the earth. 
but because of our sin. Any questions about Esther chapter 7? It's a short little chapter, but there's a lot going on here. And this is sort of the, the real knockout blow for Haman, obviously, but it's the real punch in, in the whole narrative. Uh, the whole thing's been building up to this, this moment. Yeah, Matthew. Yeah. Amen. You know, and it, it's, I think there's, a, there's another kind of point of application for us as we think about this. Who knows how the Lord will use the boldness of one faithful Christian to stand up and tell the truth? And, and then those around them who maybe were too afraid to come forward, who knew information. Uh, I mean, you're right. The, the eunuchs had intel. They knew what was going on. And often, that mid-level bureaucrat knows what's going on, but he can't say anything, or he's afraid to say anything. But one person stands up and says, this is true. This is what's actually going on here. And who knows? You may have others that are in the State Department or FDA or whoever, and, 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 or in the governor's office or in the legislature, who says you know, aides and clerks and people who get ignored regularly. But they've got all the goods. And, and a handful of faithful Christians stand up and say, this is, this is what's going on here. We're willing, we're willing to, to risk our own lives and reputations, our own, our own talent and treasure, for the sake of what is right. And others may be emboldened to stand and say, here's what we know. Here, I have a hood. I know where a, I know where a hanging tree is. Yeah. Yep. 
I will be like the Most High. Yeah. 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 Shakespeare always gives the uh, the jaker the the jester and the grave digger the uh, <laughs> the pretty. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's let's pray. We'll take a short break before our worship service. Father, you're so good to us. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you you've not left us without instruction, without hope. With, without examples for our faith. Um, and, and most of all, you've given to us a Savior who has entered into space and time, entered into our, our human experience, took on our, our human bodies, took on our human soul, suffered unjustly at the hands of sinful men on our behalf, was hanged on a tree to, propiti- to propitiate, to satisfy your eternally infinitely just and holy wrath. We give you thanks and we, we pray that you would cause us to be more bold, cause us to be reminded of your work among uh, the Jews during the time of Esther, carefully working behind the scenes, even when your name was not named, to make a deliverance for your people. We, we praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.